today here on Cincy Business Talk with Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. We'll be talking to business leaders about how they have grown their businesses and people. We discuss new strategies, tactics, and philosophies which lead to positive growth in our marketplace. Our program is sponsored by Sandler Training by Roth & Associates. Each week we'll talk with our best Cincinnati area top executives about their tools and insights. Our regular listeners will be given the edge that will help them win in a competitive environment which we live. Simple solutions to complex problems which challenge all of us are rarely correct. We will address complex problems or opportunities with appropriate solutions. If you have questions or comments, contact Mike at Mike Roth at Roth consulting.net or call Mike at 513-753-9400. Now your host, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer, Mike Roth. This is Mike Roth. I'm here today with Jeff Grames. He is the author of a new book called Lead with Humility, subtitled The 12 Leadership Lessons from Pope Francis. Before we get started on today's show, I thought I'd tell our listeners about a couple of the things that are coming up in the next couple of weeks here at Sandler. Next week, we have a show on leadership, which will be a recap of some of the leadership tips that our CEOs have given us over the last year. This is a new recap show. This is leadership number two. And the following week, on the 3rd of October, we're going to have Richard Lajeunesse, who is the president of the Cincinnati Rotary Club, and he's going to be talking about what he's going to be doing in his year as Cincinnati Rotary leader or president. The following week, we have a great show with Bill Rumpke, who is the CEO of Rumpke Waste and Recycling. He's going to be talking about all the great things that Rumpke is is doing for us here in the Cincinnati marketplace. On the Sandler training calendar, we have a few really uh, good programs uh, coming up. Monday, How to Become a Better Listener, program on October, Monday, October 6th, Sandler's Playing by the Rules and Winning. And on the 13th of October, we have a special program called Strategize Your Deals. Let's see, on 25th of September, the Rotary Club, at the that's Thursday, the 25th, uh, the Rotary Club is going to have Marvin Lewis, the coach of the Cincinnati Bengals, on the podium as the guest speaker. Marvin will be with the Rotary Club at the Hall of Mirrors at the Hilton Hotel downtown, and there will be a special reduced cost for prospective members of $10 at that meeting, but you need to call the Rotary office. You can call Linda at the Rotary office at 513-421-1080 to reserve your seat. There's a limited number of seats. And as Marvin Lewis is a popular guy here in Cincinnati, after two wins, I expect that meeting to sell out. But another sellout will be the next Business Builder Series here at Sandler Training. It's going to be at Cincinnati Fire Museum. That's downtown Cincinnati at uh, 315 West Court Street. It's going to be on Wednesday, October 22nd. The, the name of that program is the Eight Sandler Rules That Have Stood the Test of Time. If you're interested in learning how to dramatically grow sales, grow your business, grow margins, sell at a higher profit margin, competitive commodity business, you need to be at that program. The investments for clients who attend is $17. The investment for non-clients, first time you've been with us, will be $22. And President's Club, Lifetime President's Club members who attend may bring a guest at no charge. Contact Brittany Robinson at 513-753-9400. 
extension 102. Okay. The last special program that I'm going to talk about is our Transforming Leaders the Sandler Way. This is the special 52 critical leadership lessons that leaders need to know. Jeff, this is Mike Roth. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's my, my pleasure, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. Good. Your new book, Lead with Humility, the 12 Leadership Lessons from Pope Francis. When is that actually released? It's, it's just released this past week, uh, and uh, we're very fortunate that we're number one on, in two categories already on Amazon, and we're already in the third print run. So the demand sort of snuck up on us and sort of exploded right out of the gate. So it's available right now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and uh, anywhere else you can get books. Good. This isn't the first book that you've written on leadership. How many others have you written? I've written, I think this was my eighth book. I wrote three books on Jack Welch. I did a book on Donald Rumsfeld before we, we went into Iraq. Uh, one on um, uh, Peter Drucker, the father of modern management. Um, and uh, one on CEOs. So, so uh, I've had quite a lot of experience documenting and chronicling CEOs over my career because the rest of my career has been in publishing where I've published other people's books. So I'm, I probably have touched in my, career, in my 33-year career probably over four, four or 5,000 business books. I've only written eight, eight of my own but I've probably mm. edited over 400 books by now, actually, in my career. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, can you tell our audience what your motivation was uh, to write a book uh, about Pope Francis's leadership? Absolutely. You, you know, Mike, I'll tell you, I've, I've been a long, um, uh, a, a long study of, of these, uh, I've been doing long studies of, of leaders uh, in the United States and around the world, and we've had some great business leaders over the years. We've had some great political leaders over the years. But what struck me here in the last few years is the absolute dearth, the absence of any effective leadership on the world stage. That is until Pope Francis came along. Even though most people don't think and associate the words Pope Francis and leader because he's the leader of the Catholic Church, he's an exemplary leader we have a great deal to learn from him, and without a doubt, he's the most effective leader on the world stage, which is why Time Magazine put him on the cover as the person of the year, but even more important, Fortune Magazine named him the world's greatest leader. And that all happened uh, after I woke up that one morning and put the two, the, the two ideas together. I woke up one morning in, in, in February of this year, and said leadership lessons, Pope Francis, and I was so struck with what an amazing individual and what an effective leader Francis is that I became moved. And because I, even though I'm not Catholic, I'm actually the son of Holocaust survivors and mm -hmm. was raised uh, in an Orthodox Jewish family. However, uh, this man, as soon as I saw him emerge... And, and act. I saw him and, and have been uh, quoted as calling Pope Francis the anti-Hitler. He's the 21st century's answer to the 20th century's most malevolent mass murderer, Adolf Hitler. 
And, and so I said I had to do this book. It was something that I had to do. In fact, I had to, I had to take a loan to do it because I had, to, I had to sort of shut down my literary agency business. Just to do this book, uh, there was nothing that, that was going to stop me to write this book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, in putting the book together, well, at this stage, have any of your other uh, eight books gone to number one on Amazon? Well, it number, it's been number one, it's been number one um, in, 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 in actually in Catholicism categories. Right now, it's the number one book in the world uh, in, uh, in anything having to do with popes. It's number one book on anything having to do with Christian leadership. And it's number, it's number two or three um, in the world uh, in Catholicism. But ironically, of course, this is a leadership book. And right. using Pope Francis as an example, but no, no book of mine has ever um, jumped out of the gate this quickly, even before some of the real publicity is hitting, um, and 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 actually uh, um, required three print runs before the actual publication date. That that for me is an unprecedented event. Really, and how many copies would be in a print run? Um, well, we probably have, I don't know, maybe 20,000 copies in, in print right now. But they basically printed double what they, what they originally thought. The demand was so high, and that's just in English. We're also getting great, um, uh, I guess you can call them, orders from other publishers in other countries around the world who want to translate the book. And we estimate... That this will this is going to eclipse my prior records books on Jack Welch that maybe went into twelve or thirteen languages, and we're expecting something like twenty languages. We already got three different publishers to do three different Spanish editions uh, of the book because uh, Pope Francis his his name before that was was uh, Bergoglio, and he's from Argentina, the first South American pope, uh, the first Jesuit pope. Right. Uh, and uh, and so in, in Spanish languages we got, we got one for Mexico I think one for Spain and one for the rest of the world so it's just the the interest is pouring in from all over the world it's just been a great thrill for me hey, it's, it sounds like it's it's, it's been a uh, a great ride well uh, and we just started I mean I I think I'm in it for the long term I mean I've been sending out copies to CEOs I sent a copy to even the CEO of, of J.P. Morgan and got a lovely note back from, from Jamie Dimon, the, the biggest banker in the world, thanking me for the book. So while some people thought that, that you know, the Wall Streeters of the world are not going to take Pope Francis seriously as a leader, that's not the case. I'm getting thank yous from all over the country because I'm sending in uh, uh, copies uh, you know, with, with personal notes to CEOs, to Christian leaders, uh, and everyone is receiving the book extremely well. Yeah, well, uh, here at Sandler, we do a lot on leadership. We've got a, uh, our own new leadership program. Uh, uh-huh. this, this was great, a great augment. The timing couldn't have been better. Uh, for me, the best right. part is... Uh, relatively speaking, uh, your book is an easy read. Uh, right, says, and, and, and that was my intent, to keep it short and easy, right. Short, easy, and I especially love the uh, the three or four recap points at the end of every chapter, uh, which turns the book from uh, a direct focus on uh, the Pope and his leadership to how do you take it into your organization. 
Exactly. Well, you know, I have a lot of experience, you know, publishing many many people's books besides my own. And yes, I always thought it was very helpful if you could tell people exactly uh, how to apply the lessons of each chapter and how they can bring it to work Monday morning and, and just act, you know, make them actionable. And that's what I did. And uh, I am getting a lot of good feedback based on uh, on that. Yes. Good. Uh, we're going to have to take a, a short commercial break here, Jeff. We'll okay, be back that, that, that's in, good. In I'm about gonna, minutes. Okay, I'm going to uh, um, I'm going to stay on this other phone, and I'll be right with you. Well, Jeff, we're, we're not actually are you there. Yeah. Okay, that was the. Oh, intro. we're not actually taking a break. Since since, since we're uh, we're working, uh, if you would, uh, in a pre-record. This show will be released on Friday. Oh, great. Great. So uh, we'll insert a commercial here. People will hear a commercial for uh, our tip club and networking. Okay. So let's and, go. And I think in, in about five or six minutes, I'm going to go downstairs and, uh, with the other phone. Would that be all right? Yeah. Just just, just give me a, a five-second silence and say, Mike, we've reached the point that I have to take, take the break. Okay. Okay. So we're back in at uh, 103. This is Mike Roth. I'm back with Jeff Krames talking about his brand new book called Lead with Humility, the 12 Leadership Lessons uh, from Pope Paul Francis. Uh, I'm just curious, uh, Jeff, have you spoken to anyone from the Vatican about your book? You know, I I have not, and, and it really was necessary, Mike, because... He's written, Bergoglio, before he became Francis, he's written several books of his own. Um, and I have chained many articles that he participated in from, from Rome. Uh, so there was so much information, and of course, uh, he's a little busy, so I knew I wouldn't be able to get an interview. So no, the, the Vatican will probably become aware of the book as it, as it gains further acclaim. But no, I did not speak with anyone in the Vatican um, before writing the book. Of course, the Pope is a public figure, and so that means any author would have the same right to write a book about somebody as the New York Times would to publish even a one-paragraph story on somebody. So it's not a question of, of uh, ethics or anything like that, but, uh, um, but I will let the Vatican know, because 10% of all my royalties are going to the Pope's favorite Roman charity, which is a a soup kitchen hostel um, that feeds a thousand homeless people a day uh, in Rome. And 10% of all my royalties I'm going to be sending over there. So he he, he probably will get word of it at at one point or another. Mm, That's good. Well, there's a nice nice picture of him on the cover of the book. They put a, a wonderful picture of him. Uh, on the book, and you know, one one thing about the title, "Lead with Humility," mm-hmm. I, I was shocked to learn that there has never been any book um, on. Um, there's never been a book with a topic of humility in the title um, of any business or leadership book. That is, no publisher has ever published a book with the word "no business publisher." with the mm-hmm. word humility in the title. And I, I was sort of taken aback by that. I thought humility was so much more important. Uh, so it's an uh, underrated, it's an underrated uh, characteristic. Jeff, uh, yeah. lead with humility. 
What made you pick that title? Well, interestingly enough, I sort of wrestled with the title, Mike. I, I had... Um, I thought we might go with a more straightforward title, which became the subtitle, 12 Leadership Lessons from Pope Francis. But the first chapter of the book was called Lead with Humility, mm-hmm. and my publisher actually came up with it. And I said, boy, that's just perfect, because uh, once we did the research and saw there's never been a business book on the topic for, you know, for de- at least for, the, for two decades, and I'm sure never before, we thought it was a perfect title. So my publisher, I have to give credit to. Uh, before we go to commercial, I'm going to remind everyone again about the, uh, now I'm going to ask Jimmy Fox to come on and talk us, to us about Tip Club, which is a networking group here in Cincinnati, which I sponsor. And uh, the next meeting is next Thursday from 7.30 a.m. to 9 a.m. Jimmy, take it away. Hi, I'm Jimmy Fox of Tip Club. Tip Club is a professional networking organization whose members help each other succeed. We meet once per month and provide a forum where business-to-business professionals are able to connect with more desirable opportunities and build long-term strategic partnerships. I'm inviting Cincinnati Business Talk listeners to come to our free networking event. You'll have the opportunity to meet new people, share leads and referrals, and grow your business through strategic alliances. Membership in our Cincinnati group is open to only one person per specific trade or occupation. Business-to-business professionals only, please. We do not accept multi-level marketing or recruiting-driven memberships. This is our only group in Cincinnati. We'll meet on the third Thursday of the month from 7.30 to 9 a.m. at Sandler Training by Roth & Associates, 4357 Ferguson Drive, Cincinnati, Ohio. To reserve a seat please go to www.tipclub.com and click on the Events tab at the top of the page. Then, just scroll down the list until you come to the Cincinnati event. Or you may call 800-798-0270. That's 1-800-798-0270. Thank you, and we look forward to seeing you at our next networking event. So this is Mike Roth. I'm back with uh, Jeff Kramer. Uh, Jeff, uh, perhaps you could quickly summarize the 12 leadership lessons from Pope Francis. This may be uh, you a know, uh, each one. You ready, Mike? Go ahead. Well, that would actually take a very long time because uh, obviously the 12 lessons make up the book Lead with Humility. But... Um, I can start by uh, mentioning here a few that come off, uh, off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. One thing he talks about is how to smell like your flock, meaning that if you're going to lead a group of people, you have to live with them, and you have to be with them, and you have to live like them. So when he was bishop of the slums before Bergoglio, which was his name before Francis, he lived in the slums. And he, and he went in, into the gutters with these folks and drank tea with them. So smelling like your flock, that's one of the leadership lessons. Um, another one talks about consultation and avoiding insularity. It's so easy for a leader, 
especially if you're in a business and you're a CEO, uh, to sort of get uh, sort of stuck in the bubble, if you will, almost like a president does in his Oval Office because he's not out amongst the people. So one okay. of the things Pope Francis did is he put together a cabinet, if you will, of eight archbishops representing the entire world, only one from Europe, uh, in order to have a consultation uh, and a consultative body for himself so that he wouldn't have to make decisions alone. He makes the final decision, but he's, he knows he's getting the best advice from all over the world. And so much of the book is basically an acknowledgement by Pope Francis that he does not have all the answers. Not only that, he may not even have all of the questions, and he knows that too. Another leadership lesson is favor pragmatism over ideology. It's extremely timely. Why do I say be pragmatic instead of being uh, ideological? Well, before Pope Francis, any pope in the face of any kind of a war or a battle or a threat would just simply call for world peace. But here we have the growing threat of ISIS, or ISIL, as the president calls them. He knows they're evil, they're beheading people on, on national television across the world. And so um, he knows that this is an evil that must be confronted, unlike uh, Pope Pius during World War II, who basically gave his tacit approval to Adolf Hitler. That's why I call Francis the anti-Hitler, because he knows that evil must be confronted and that there's nothing wrong with stopping the evil aggressor, or what he calls the unjust aggressor. So, so much of Pope Francis is living in the world of reality, not in the world of ideology. Right. Let, let, let me go back to that word you used, uh, which is one of those $50 words, insularity, okay? Right. Most people don't use that word in, uh, in common business language. Uh, I, is, is it here that you mean that the leader is not part of the uh, problem or the solution, but they put themselves on a, in a different plane? Almost exactly, Mike. Almost like they put themselves on the pedestal, right? And this is so perfect for Pope Francis because within minutes of him being elected Pope, one of the first acts he was asked to do was what all the other popes before him did, and that's to sort of climb on top of this short pedestal so he can greet the, the tens of thousands of people who had gathered in St. Peter's. But he refused. He refused to elevate himself above anyone. He said, no, I am a sinner that God has chosen to smile upon. I'll stay down here, basically, with the rest of you. So he acknowledged that he was no better than them, and then he did something else that no pope has ever done. Usually it's customary for the pope then, once he's elected, to give a prayer to everybody who's assembled, the tens or hundreds of thousands of people. But mm -hmm. this Pope Francis actually asked people to pray for him first before he'd give a prayer out to everybody else, basically acknowledging that he's going to need all the help he could get. So that's what he did. 
He yeah. asked for a prayer first. So yes, insularity means not putting yourself above or distinct or separate from your people, but putting yourself with your people. That's why the Pope lives in the two-bedroom apartment, and that's why he took out the throne that the, the Pope usually stays in, why he, he wears a simple black cross that he wore when he was in Argentina, and that's why he leads with humility, and that's why the title of the book is Lead with Humility, because everything he does first is humble. So he leads with humility, hence the title. Good. Uh, I'm going to uh, jump in uh, to, to one of your chapters, uh, Jeff. Uh, and the chapter heading is, uh, and each chapter is one of these uh, leadership, leadership lessons. lessons. Right, right. Change, reinvent. And in your book, you, you came up with a bold headline, reinvent your organization. Right. Uh, we're leaders right. in both the nonprofit world and the for-profit world. What do you think that really means, and how would they apply it? That's a, that's a great question, Mike. Uh, I, I, I do say reinvent, don't just call for change. Here you have Pope Francis, and he could be calling for very small incremental changes. After all, he's the 266th pontiff. The 265 that came before him never attempted to bring about such sweeping changes. What do I mean by sweeping changes? When he was asked about, the, about civil unions, same-sex civil unions, and the LGBT community, he would say, who am I to judge? So he does not think that he should be put in the position of God or Jesus. He's a man like everybody else. So he's mm -hmm. calling for monumental changes in the church, but he's not looking to do this all at once. Yes, he's trying to reinvent the church from head to toe, basically turn the whole thing on its head. Because before he got there, mm -hmm. uh, especially if you looked at his predecessor, uh, Benedictine, Pope Benedictine, um, the church was sort of a place where you would get scolded for doing the wrong things. Don't mm -hmm. do this, don't eat this, don't get divorced. If you get divorced or you're married to someone who's divorced, you can't take Holy Communion. And here comes along Pope Francis. Now, he's a realist and a pragmatist at the same time that he mm -hmm. wants to reinvent the Church, which simply so means this. Any leader who wants to bring about this degree of change, this degree of reinvention, knows mm -hmm that it requires years, not weeks and months, but months and years to be able to bring about this kind of change. He has not altered church doctrine at all, yet he's changed everyone's attitude. It's the, the most difficult thing to do, Mike, is to change someone's attitude about a brand or a product and imagine something more entrenched than the Catholic Church. Yet he's got just about a 90% approval rating across the world. Nine out of ten people of all persuasions love this man and what he's trying to do. And why wouldn't you love him? He's trying to say that this is a church that's going to love you no matter what. It's going to welcome you into its doors and it's going to offer you healing no matter what. 
That's exactly the opposite of what the church used to represent when it told you all the things that you're not supposed to do. He's saying, come on in, you're welcome here, no matter what. That's why he, he, he washes the feet of both male and female prisoners, which is unprecedented. He mm-hmm. washed the feet of, of young children or teenagers hooked on Paco cocaine when he was in the, in the Bishop of the Slums. Because mm-hmm. he embraces everybody. Everybody's welcome, except the people who are most greedy, the people who don't want to share, because we, he knows the amazing fact of income inequality has never been this severe. That means that he knows that 85 of the richest people in the world control half of the world's wealth. That's unprecedented. Never before in the history of mankind has 85 people controlled the same amount of wealth as the poorest 3.5 billion people. That's inequality like the world has never seen. That's why Pope Francis is the right man at the right time, and he's the right leader at the right time. But most people don't think of him as a leader because they think of him as the Pope. He's too kind and compassionate to be a leader. Let me tell you, he's tough as nails, but yet he's also as compassionate as Christ. He's incredible. He's an extraordinary singular figure who comes along maybe once in a generation, which is why I wrote the book. So let me ask you this question. Uh, in reinventing your, your uh, organization, uh, mm-hmm. if, if Pope Francis wants to uh, liberalize the Catholic Church's uh, dealing with divorce by uh, making it okay for divorced people to be Catholics and receive communion, and he wants right. to make church more open and inviting to the uh, gay and lesbian communities, mm-hmm. uh, why doesn't he just change the rules? Well, you know, Mike, because there, uh, it's not that simple. I mean, think, think uh, uh, just as a sort of, let, 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 let's take for an example the promise that, uh, and this is a bad example, but I'll use it for a minute. You know, Barack Obama got elected twice, the first time, with such hope that we were going to have great change in our country. And look at the gridlock that got stuck there. The Pope, you know, he, he faces similar potential gridlock because... It's not just, even though he is the Pope, there is still part of the Vatican, and there's still a very conservative contingent or constituency out there, both in the world, in the Catholic community, as well as the elders in the Vatican, who don't want him to change the world. He has to bide his time. So he can't snap his fingers and change church doctrine. Yet, he understands that while he is Pope, and even though he's not very healthy because, you know, he almost died when he was young, in his 30s, you know, but he only has one lung, he's 77 now, but he knows as long as he's Pope, uh, that everyone is going to feel, at least they're going to feel welcome in this church, even though he can't necessarily just snap his fingers and alter the doctrine that existed for hundreds and thousands of years. It doesn't work that way. It takes time, and any great leader understands and builds that time sort of into the formula. 
And he's done that. So that's why I'm so curious to see what happens from day to day or from week to week or from month to month to see what he's going to say and do next. He, for instance, he's going to be, I think he's trying to make a difference on the world stage right now. He is planning, and he will go to Istanbul, Turkey, in November. So in two months' time, mm-hmm. he'll, he'll, he's going to visit a Muslim nation. It's the first pope to do that, I think, in perhaps 15 to 20 years. So he knows that to bring about change, he's got to do it by example, but it still can't happen overnight. So he, so he, he makes these pronouncements or these declarations but still, they're almost like trial balloons, and they have to be understood as trial balloons, and uh, not as an official alteration in church doctrine. It'll be very interesting to see what he can really do. Can he really reinvent the church in the years to come? So that will be left for another author or another sequel or another book given another one to two or three years to see what he actually, how he executes. But so far, he's executed beautifully because people's attitude towards the church has changed so dramatically that many more millions of people are going back to church. Even within six months, he increased the weekly attendance at his weekly prayer by, by something like 1,700%. I measured it. Within six months of him becoming pope, 1,700% more people come now to hear him give his weekly prayer than did before under his predecessor. I guess, you know, as a non-Catholic, when I hear him say, who am I to judge uh, about divorce or, or other right. issues, he seems to be saying that it's okay. Right. Uh, he is he, Exactly, Mike. When he says, who am I to judge, he's saying the church that he represents should basically not be there like some angry principal and a student who's sent to the office of, of the Pope to tell you all the things you did wrong in life. Instead, mm-hmm. people should be nurtured. What he said specifically about, for instance, people who were divorced, is that when people are divorced, they're going through a very difficult time. They need our help more than just about anyone. Let's offer them compassion rather than a closed door. Let's offer them love rather than a cold shoulder. That's what the Pope represents. And that's why I was so completely taken with him and why I I basically shut down my business and went into debt to write this book because it became something I had to do like getting up in the morning and breathing and taking your first step out of bed, I had to write this book. It was passion. It was born of passion. It's, it, it, it just meant the world to me to be able to execute and write so that other people can under, better understand what Pope Francis represents and how they can bring more of that compassion into the workplace. doesn't mean they don't have to be tough. The Pope himself, Pope Francis, calls himself a political animal with a capital P. But mm-hmm. yet, he understands himself, so he could be tough when he needs to be. He fired the, the Bing Bishop because he spent over 30 million euros, this, this uh, German bishop, on his apartment. I think it was in New York. That's, That's not acceptable. He lives in the, the Pope 
Francis lives in a two-bedroom apartment. He took out the throne, and he lives like everybody else, and he, and he drives a Ford. He doesn't want to be, like, elevated. He wants to be among the people. When he has to make a confession, he gets down on one knee in front of any priest like anybody else. Completely unprecedented for a pope. Unprecedented. Jeff, we're going to have to take a commercial break here. And uh, okay. we're going to be right back after we hear uh, San Rule number 34. Hello, I'm Jerry Weinberg, Sandler Training, and I'm here today to talk about Sandler Rule number 34, which says work smart and not hard. So one of the things we need to do when we're involved in, in going after a, a prospect is to learn how to qualify and disqualify early on. Uh, it's been my experience, you know, having done this for many, many years, as we coach our clients, as, as we train them, that they seem to spend, many of them, an incredible amount of time chasing, following up business they're never going to get. And for goodness sakes, if you're going to follow, you know, finish second, why do you even want to bother being in there? We don't get paid on experience. And frequently what happens is uh, we, we have a prospect maybe who's on our top ten list, let's say, and we want so badly to meet them, and we finally get an appointment with Mr. or Ms. Big, and, and uh, we're brought in there, and uh, next thing you know, we're doing a proposal to a totally unqualified situation. And uh, maybe it's a much larger piece of business than we normally would be working with. And we wind up in Think It Overland. And next thing you know, we're following up and we're, we're making phone calls and, and we're sending emails and nothing's happening. I'll tell you what is happening is we're not prospecting because we're spending too much time with prospects we're never going to do business with. In fact, I'd like you to write that question down and kind of track it over the next several days. How much time do I spend following up, chasing business I'm never going to get and how do I suffer with that? One of the ways that you can work around that is instead of going after a, a large chunk of dollars, start with a smaller piece. We call it a monkey's paw. Get some dollars, maybe for an assessment, maybe for a pilot program. You'll also keep your competition out of the picture. You'll at least feel like you're making some progress and then you can make it work better. So again, Jerry Weinberg, Sandler Rule number 34, Work smart, not hard. This is Mike Roth. I am back with Jeff Krames, from, uh, who has written the book, The 12 Leadership Lessons from Pope Francis, or the main title, uh, Lead with Humility. Jeff, uh, in the book, you, you have some references to uh, a speech that uh, now Pope uh, Francis made to the conclave of bishops that you believe uh, got him elected. Uh, yes, 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 Mike. That's a great. That's a great discussion point. Yes, you, you know what people don't understand and 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 uh, maybe don't remember uh, is we're talking about the 2012 conclave in which he, in which he was elected in 2005. When his predecessor got elected, actually he received, that is Bergoglio, Pope Francis received 
more votes than any South American in history, and he had the, the, almost the opportunity, he did have the opportunity if he wanted to fight for the job, but he didn't, because he did not want to make the church looked uncertain, and he knew that the battle would have taken some days. So he basically, uh, not basically, what he actually did was, he told people during a, during a key lunch, quietly, to throw their weight not behind him, Bergoglio, but behind Ratzinger, who became Pope Benedictine. Mm-hmm. Then in 2012, once again, he was received, he, he didn't go in there as one of the front runners. I think it was something like the, the odds were something like 100 to 1, actually, that he would actually be elected. Why? We've never had a South American priest. We've never had a, Je- uh, I'm sorry, a South American pope. We've never had a Jesuit pope. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he never asked for the job. But, and that's, this is what's so interesting, the people who know him best and who knew him best before he became pope, they can't say whether or not he wanted the job because he never told anyone this is something that he aspired to because I think he was so humble once he was in the slums, he thought it was not possible. So all, all he could do when he was in that conclave in 2012 was give his basically his vision of what the church would look like should he somehow or anyone else, whoever would become Pope, he painted a vision of the finish line, which is such an important leadership lesson. Leaders need to, need to show followers what the finish line looks like. And what his finish line looked like in his three-and-a-half-minute speech was, a, was what he actually executed in, in the subsequent 18 months since he became Pope, which is a far more open and welcoming church, one that is geared to, to, to get people closer to a higher being, in his case, closer to Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And that was what he described. But there's no one who ever gave an accounting from that 2012 conclave in which he won the job uh, that he actually ever asked for it. And if you compare that, for instance, with our American political system today, and you look at people, whether it's Hillary Clinton or whoever is out there, on the Republican side, Democrats, that doesn't make a difference. People have to ask for the job a thousand times before they have a chance to ever get it. But he never, ever asked for the job. Instead, he just painted a vision of a more pastoral, welcoming church that caters to people, that offers them warmth, and then some of the key people said that's, that's said quietly to each other, that's what we need, that's who we need, and that's how he became the 266th pontiff, Pope Francis. Mm-hmm. So were there people in the conclave who uh, revealed uh, to the public what, what he said? Well, yes. To, to a, a, actually, yes. There was a, there were, there was a biography that was written later on, and people did actually uh, tell this biographer, who uh, in, I guess in Italy, when he went to research it, that they sort of spilled the beans and kind of did, did, and, and allowed this journalist to put together. So that's why someone like me, a writer who was writing through the lens of leadership, I didn't necessarily need to interview people from the conclave or something because the story was already out. There was, you know, I mean, I, I, I basically looked at hundreds of articles, dozens of books, 
and I, I was able to piece together what had happened through all different accounts that people had given. Yes, Mike. That's one of the things I liked about this book. It's got a source notes or, or a bibliography of where uh, you're getting the information. Uh, it seemed like almost in every chapter, uh, page by page. So uh, you're documenting for the reader uh, where they can go if they want to read the, the original. Uh, Absolutely. That's a great point, Mike. That's particularly important to places like libraries, researchers. Yes, there's probably two, two to three hundred sources. Every single quote in the book comes from a source, whether it's the Pope's lips himself. And all you've got to do is look in the back of the book, and you can see where every single quote in the book. There is not one quote unattributed. I'm very careful. You, you need to be as a writer today to put quotation marks around anything that, that you write that's not your own writing, that's somebody else's. And I was extremely disciplined about that. It's something I learned uh, with my three decades plus of publishing and writing to do that. So, yes, every, everything is sourced. Thank you for it's pointing sourced. that out. And, uh, you know, as a book reader, I have to tell our, tell our listeners, it was an easy book to read. Uh, I, I don't like to sit down and read whole books. I would rather actually listen to them. But... In, in this particular book, I sat down on a, on a Sunday afternoon, and I think in two hours I had the whole thing read. And uh, so it made, making it an easy read uh, was, I thought, an important, uh, important thing to do. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, yes, you know, Mike, I'm very sensitive. People, you know, p- between emails and voicemails and work and offices, people don't have time to read books today. So what I did was I wrote a book that you could read on a plane from New York to Chicago. Uh, yeah. I, took two planes, I took two plane rides today from, from, from Chicago to Charlotte, Charlotte to Florida. On either leg, legs of those planes, I could have finished reading this book. That's because people want to read things that are quick and easy to understand. So this is the easiest book ever put together on Pope Francis. It just, it, it's called Lead with Humility. But it it's also serves as sort of a pseudo-biography as well, as you pointed out very nicely. Thank you for that. Right. right. The, uh, <laughs> you mentioned email. I have people that send me emails that are three and four pages long. Uh, wow. Three morning, and I read them 9 a.m. the next day. And, oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> really oh my, you know what? Yeah. If someone sent me a three-page email, I think I'd kill myself, Michael. I'm sorry. I couldn't take it. I, I couldn't. I kill myself for before I could read it. I, I would erase it. I would erase it. You have you have the patience of a saint. No one's ever sent me a three-page email unless you know people try to sell me send me their, their book or the beginnings of a book. But anyway, go ahead. But uh, that, that happens. Uh, the uh, and I was talking to uh, one of our clients who's Catholic, and, and we were talking about uh, Pope Francis and. He thought there was a divide in the world uh, that that Francis wasn't really appropriately addressing, because here in the United States, where we have a lot of Catholics, uh, the division of wealth is is not that big of an issue for most people, uh, because we've we've created a system where where we have a uh, a fairly prosperous middle class, Uh, whereas uh, he was coming from uh, Brazil or, or Argentina. Uh, Argentina, about, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where he was working uh, at the bottom end of the socioeconomic scale, and so perhaps his point of view uh, was correct for that for that 
from that perspective, from there. But now as, as the leader of the Catholic Church, how, how does he address uh, distribution of wealth relative to uh, North America, Canada and America? Well, you know, this, now you brought up a very big and important issue. First of all, I'm not sure I agree with uh, all of the assumptions you put into that question. Because, and I'll tell you why. Because mm. we have never had a worse case in, in, in uh, American history, I don't believe. Um, so let's talk about the United States, where we have more of a divided system of people who have and people who have not. In other words, the, the, the income inequality does not stop at the United States border. We have it here. I think there's at least 30 million Americans living below the poverty line, maybe 30 million families, at least, who can't right. feed, feed their families. But, but the, the assumption that Pope Francis might be coming, this, coming at this sort of from the poorer side of the world, that, that's probably true. Because he, you know, he was trained his, for years as the bishop of the slums to understand and to um, realize that there's, there's just such a great divide. There's rich people and there's poor people. And he understands that, and he's not anti-capitalism. He's gotten a bad rap. People, would, people like your friend might say, you know what, the Pope, he, he's, well, he's anti-capitalism. Well, that's not actually true. In fact, he's called business, the, the vocation of business, to be, and I quote him, a bold profession. It's just that if people have billions, uh, they sh- really, or millions, it, it, it should be incumbent upon them to be more altruistic and to give more money to people who have less. And, you know, I'll tell you, Mike, in my career as a ghostwriter and as a literary agent, I've worked with some wealth, very wealthy people, people who have hundreds of millions of dollars. And I will tell you that, my, in my experience, the people who have the hundreds of millions of dollars and who have, who have built it up over the years, either because they created their own business or because they rose to the head of one of the, big, the biggest Wall Street firms in America, these are the most generous people. These are the people creating uh, hospitals for children and uh, heart hospitals because they might suffer from heart disease. In fact, I've never, I've worked with, uh, I would say, maybe a dozen uh, people, you know, I come from very modest beginnings, and I kind of stayed there. Publishing people don't get too rich. But I've worked with very wealthy people. And I'll tell you, and, 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 and all in the U.S., and these are amazingly generous people. They're, they're just incredible people. And I do have, since I have my own business, I do have the good fortune to choose who I work with. But, uh, but all the people I work with who had that kind of money was doing just amazing things for people around the world. I mean, look, look, at, look at, for instance, the two, two of the wealthiest people in the United States, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates. Bill Gates, right, who founded Microsoft, him and Melissa, his wife, are basically vowing to, to, to basically end AIDS in the world in their lifetime. And Warren Buffett, rather than give all the money to his children, which is what happened, unfortunately, to the Waltons, the people who founded Walmart, mm-hmm. uh, Warren Buffett is giving all of his money to Bill and Melissa Gates when he dies so that they could take the money and do amazingly good things with it. So we happen to live in an age where 
two of the most generous people on the planet are two of the wealthiest, Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, and Warren Buffett, the world's greatest investor. And so he's just saying if you have the means, don't keep it all to yourself. What would it kill you to share it so that people, I'm giving 10%, this I haven't even told anyone, 10% of, of what I'm making on the book, even though this is the only income I'll, I'll have for next year, basically, um, is going to go to the Pope's favorite charity in Rome, which is a place that feeds a thousand homeless people every day. So it's too, it's, so I mean he's inspired me to give too, even though I'm not wealthy because because I, at least like my father always told me, if you have food on the table and a roof over your head, you're probably better off than most. And so as long right. as I have those things, I'm going to give as much as I possibly can. Well, you know, we've had those kinds of reforms here in this country going back to uh, Teddy Roosevelt, who. Uh, Busted up the the trusts, right, uh, right, right. Ancient. So uh, that that's an important point. Uh, l- let me go on in, in the next because we only have a couple of minutes before the next commercial break. Uh, we want to talk about uh, how to make how how Pope Francis sees making inclusion a top priority. Uh, Are we talking about that now? Yeah, l- let's just start for a minute or two. Okay, again, this, this feeds right into the, into the theme that, that it is Pope Francis. He wants to cast the widest net possible. He wants to, you know, he doesn't like the fact, for instance, that he's known sort of as a superstar. He, he, he does not really uh, welcome that sort of superstar status. He doesn't know what to, what to do with it. On the other hand, he, he's, a, he's a pragmatist. And he understands that a lot of the attraction of people going back to the church, of the church including people that normally they would have excluded, is due to him. So he understands both of those things. And he wants people included. So how do you take that to the workplace? You know, in today's work environment, Mike, if you're fortunate enough to have a job, uh, you know, you need to make sure and, and to lead people at the same time. You don't have the luxury to leave anyone out. You don't have the luxury to have people on the bench not contributing because it's the, the world is just too hyper-competitive. I the mean, you know, now we, we have the most global marketplace ever. So, mm-hmm. so you, have, you have to include everyone, and if people are not making a contribution, find out why and make a tough decision either way. Okay, we're going to take a... Uh a short commercial break here, Jeff, and we're going to okay. be back in uh, two minutes. Let's listen to uh, a couple of uh, Sandler commercials. This is a message for professional salespeople. It's an unusual message. I'm going to tell you that our product is expensive and difficult. It takes effort to use, and it's not for everyone. We provide difficult but effective sales training. It's the kind of training familiar to champion athletes. It builds winners in the world of business. We don't promise quick fixes or color brochures, only hard work that will teach you how to sell effectively even when your price is higher. If you're tired of hearing, I want to think it over. If you're finally ready to invest in yourself and your sales career and learn how to close more business faster, call me, Mike Roth, 513-646-6523, and we'll invite you to our next Lunch and Learn Sales Discovery Workshop on February 5th at either 8 a.m., 
or 1 p.m. 513-646-6523. This is Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. Many salespeople tell us business was really easy. They likened it to gathering fruit in an orchard full of ripe trees. They gathered the low-hanging fruit. They had to get baskets to pick up the fruit that was already fallen. They never had to climb a tree. They worked this way for 10 or 15 years. Given the strong economy, this was no problem. What are you hearing now? The economy has slowed down. Salespeople are competing on price. There's still business now, but salespeople have to work harder. The fruit has not fallen from the tree, and there's no low-hanging fruit. The fruit is there, but it's higher up in the tree. The problem is their salespeople have forgotten how to climb. Do your salespeople know how to climb? If you or your team needs to learn how to climb through and up out of tough economic times, call me, Mike Roth, at 513-646-6523 or check our website at rothconsulting.net. This is Mike Roth. I'm back with Jeff Krames, the author of Lead with Humility, the 12 Leadership Lessons from Pope Francis. Uh, Jeff, as I was reading through the book, uh, one of the things that floored me is uh, the Pope's being influenced by uh, Rabbi Abraham uh, Sorker. Sorker, yes. Sorker. Yes, you, you, you know, Mike. Listen, uh, a little bit about what happened there. Well, you know, that's very interesting. Basically, you know, these are the, the two uh, before Francis became Francis when he was Bergoglio. Um, he he befriended the highest-ranking rabbi in all of Argentina, Rabbi Abraham or Abraham Skorka. And not only did he befriend him, but he did something that was totally unique, and they wrote a book together. Um, uh, and, of course, at the moment, I, I think it's called on, he- on Heaven and Earth. And it just shows, you know, that this is a pope that lives and leads by example. How could you be more inclusive than a pope or an archbishop than to include a rabbi in your writings so that you're appealing to a much wider audience? It was a fascinating book. They wrote it in 2010 together, so two years before the the conclave of 2012. It was published uh, first in Spanish, of course, in Argentina, uh, and then everything uh, that the pope ever did got translated into English once he became pope very quickly and it became a very, a very big market um, but still uh, a lot so much of what the, the pope is such an intellectual and so is actually so is the rabbi the rabbi uh, perhaps not as much as uh, as pope francis that sometimes the more intellectual you are the more sort of formal or institutional um, is your writing so that was what, that was another very important reason why I wrote the book, Lead with Humility, because I, I just wanted to make sure that people had one place they can go to understand in the easiest term possible, the easiest way possible. I mean, I think it's probably written that, well, you know, like, an, it's, I, I never write down to people. I don't believe in that. However, I, I write books exactly the way I want to read them, with great clarity Make sure every sentence and every word counts. Don't put things in there that don't belong. Unless it advances the theme of the book, don't include it. And the Pope was like that, but still, he writes in a very institutional way, and I kind of show that in some of, some of his uh, teachings and some of his, some of his uh, uh, sermons. 
Um, but yes, I thought it was rather marvelous that he wrote a book, because uh, I didn't know this going in, that he wrote a book, co-authored a book with, Ra- with, with Rabbi Squawker. And then all these things got translated just in the nick of time for me to be able to use these. So, I mean, I had to have some articles actually act, uh, translated. I paid someone to translate some of these things from his native language into English just because they hadn't been translated as of yet. But this particular book that he wrote with, uh, with, with Abraham Skalker had been translated into on, on, on Heaven and Earth, which is written about in the bibliography. Okay. Uh, in the past, you've done uh, a number of books uh, or worked with Peter Drucker's work, and you have references right. to uh, the similarities between Drucker and Pope Francis. Right. Uh, perhaps you could uh, give our listeners the biggest uh, Drucker lesson that where or where Francis and Drucker are both pointing in the same direction. That's a great question, Mike. I'll, t- I'll tell you where it is. The chapter about appealing to non-customers. This was something that you know Peter Drucker. For people who may, may or you know most people, most of your listeners I know will know Peter Drucker. He is. I call him. Uh, he's known as the father of modern business. Um, I call him the grandfather of the modern-day business book because he wrote um, the book called Concept of the Corporation in 1942 after being in, I'm sorry, 1946, I believe, after uh, being invited in to, um, uh, to General Motors and to study the company. And, and, and even when I met with him in 2000, when I met with Drucker at his home in 2003, he still didn't know who it was who invited him into General Motors back in the 1940s. But Peter Drucker wrote about non-customers, appealing to non-customers, and that is that the people that you probably know the least about are the people who are not currently your customers. They're your non-customers. And you have to appeal to those people. So if you look at what Francis has done, that would, that would mean all the Catholics who don't come to church, that would mean people like me, who's Jewish, who, who normally would not take note of a pope or his pronouncement. Anyone currently not going, say, to regular church or regular mass would be a non-customer. And no one, no pope in the history of mankind has ever, ever paid more attention to the non-customers than Pope Francis. And that's a classical Peter Druckerism. And so that's where they really intersect. And there's other language in the book. It's very interesting. I use it like bookends, Mike, in the beginning of the book and the end of the book, where I compare the two into actual sentences, talking about the structure of companies and the structure of organizations where their ideas intersect. And it's just a very fascinating thing to look at the way they write, the sort of the way they look at organizations as... Um, as institutions that should be helping society, not hurting society. Okay. Uh, do you have any idea of, or could you give us a couple of examples of leaders in either government or uh, corporate America uh, that are, are already leading with humility? Well, you know, it's a, uh, that's such a tough question. I'll tell you the truth, Mike. I have such a hard time. I'm sure they're out there. Um, but uh, in our government, for instance, I see such an absence of leadership and an absence of humility. And they're, they're related. I mean, humility, I think I mentioned to you earlier, humility uh, is the one quality 
that um, has never been written about in the title of a business book. And remember, there's been thousands, since, since the great business book boom started in 1982 with In Search of Excellence and The One Minute Manager, there's been thousands and thousands of business books published. I mean, there are thousands of, still to this day, even with publishing not being what it was, there are still thousands of business books published each year. And no one ever thought to write a business book with the word humility in the title. There are books with the word humility in the title. They're just not aimed at anyone having to do with the business world or leadership world. Um, so I can't think of almost anyone in the world of, for instance, government. I mean, maybe, I mean, there might be some senators and some congresspeople, perhaps, but, you know, I think it's, it runs so contrary to become an elected official, for instance, in the United States. It's very difficult because you have to go out there and tell the world how great you are. You can't tell them how terrible you are or that you are a sinner that God has chosen just to smile upon for this one thing. You can't be Pope Francis necessarily um, and be in government. Now, in corporate America, it's a different story. I do know one man. In, in the world of business. His name is Rock, Rocco Ortenzio. He, he does lead a publicly traded company called Select Medical Corporation. And in the interest of full transparency, I, was, I, I wrote a book on him at his behest that was not, um, uh, that was not distributed. It was just for him and his company and his grandchildren. But he was like, he's the only, le- the only leader I could think of who has... The, the humility that Pope Francis um, would think uh, to uh, uh, that, that would rival Pope Francis, and I put him in the book and I thanked him in the book because he actually read the book for me uh, when it was in in, in uh, uh, just manuscript form and gave me some pointers. But I, I have a very difficult time, quite frankly, coming up with any leaders who have Francis-like humility, which is which is why I, I had to write this book. Mm-hmm. I actually have come across a few over the last twenty yeah. years. Uh, as a Sandler trainer, uh, but they're few and far between, and uh, I'm not sure that they'd want me to mention their names. Um, right. But if you went through the list of the 200 people who've been on my radio show, Cincinnati Business Talk, you probably will find one or two uh, like that. Uh, let me uh, change the subject to talk about uh, your your chapter on running your organization like a field hospital, like a uh, right. mass unit. Right. Mass unit. Yes, let me tell you about that. You know, um, the Pope, Pope Francis, when he was out, uh, as the, when he was an archbishop and a bishop, a bishop, he didn't believe in staying in some office or in some place holed up and pushing papers. He believes in going out and helping people, going out into the streets, and helping people uh, who can't help themselves. Usually what he called the people who were thrown on the dust heap of society. So he doesn't want any members of the clergy to be beautifully clean, and he wants, them, he wants his people dirty. He wants, them, he wants them unkempt because they've been out in the streets looking for people, picking up people who can't pick up themselves, dealing with homeless people, hungry people, people who can't pay their electric bills. These are the people that he's entrusted people now as the Pope to go out onto the streets and help because he can't do it himself. 
So he doesn't. So he he sees the entire church as like a mass unit to give help. That you know the way he describes it. He describes it like this. He says, if you are bleeding and you're on the battlefield uh, and you got a terrible wound, let's say in your chest or abdomen, and you're bleeding terribly, and you you could die. No one's going to ask you at that moment, for instance, what what your cholesterol is. People who are severely uh, burdened by life because they don't have anything, they don't have enough food to eat, or they don't have a roof over their head, or they're imprisoned, perhaps uh, wrongly, whatever the case, he wants members of the clergy to go out into the community and help people. So how can we apply that to business? Don't sit in your office. You know, it's so easy these days, Mike. We talked about emails earlier. It's so easy to sit there with the email and the Twitter account and to, and to tweet out to people. Um, it's so much easier just to stay put, to Skype. No, that's not, he's not a Skyper, Pope Francis. He's, so, he's someone who wants to go out there. He only has one lung. He's 77 years old. What did he want to do for his birthday? Who did he want to have, have dinner with? Was it somebody famous or somebody great or, or, or some big wig in the church? No. It was four homeless people that he picked up. And he didn't do this for a photo op. There are no photos of these homeless people. He just felt more comfortable having lunch on his birthday when he turned 77 in December of 2013 with four homeless people because he went out into the community and got them. He went out and got dirty. He wants his priests dirty. Well, that makes uh, a lot of sense. In that role, telling our leaders to uh, keep an open-door policy. Exactly. Keep an open-door policy. I had one CEO who always kept, for instance, candy, a big, big, big whole thing of candy, like a tank of candy. In his, in his, it could be a jar of candy, whatever. So, and he invited everyone. He was the CEO. But he wanted people to walk in their office whether he was there or not. But if he was there, he would engage people of different levels of, of the company in conversations. He would get them out of their offices. They'd come grab some candy to get a sugar high. So, yeah, he doesn't want people holed up in their office. He wants people out there meeting with people out in the field. If you're a salesperson, you should travel more. You should be meeting with your customers, your vendors. Don't sit in an office. Get out and go and what he calls the frontier. That's another chapter of the book, Live on the Frontier. That means pushing yourself to, to your utmost. That means pushing the envelope. When you do an interview with Mike Roth, you have to live on the frontier because Mike Roth asks very difficult, in-depth questions. So believe me, after this interview, I'm going, to need to, I'm going to be exhausted because no interviewer has ever put me to such a test as Mike Roth, just so you know. <laughs> oh, that's great, Jeff. I'm going to have to put that on the, uh, the taglines for, for the show. <laughs> Please do. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's been a very interesting interview with you, Jeff. Uh, Thanks, I want Mike. to thank you for uh, coming on the show, and uh, I'm going to be uh, sending to you uh, one of, uh, actually, I'm going to send you a copy of David Sandler's first book called You Can't Teach Your Kid to Ride a Bike at a Seminar, and okay. uh, we'll get that over to you, <laughs> and uh, 
you can tell me uh, offline what you think of it, or you can uh, say I want to be back on the show and talk about David's uh, first book. Uh, uh, sure, I will want to be back on your show. Thank you so much, Mike. I appreciate it. Good. Thanks for being on the show again, Jeff. And uh, Scott, why don't you uh, take it away? Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. This program is the property of Sandler Training by Roth & Associates, Inc. The show may be distributed only with written permission and then only in its entirety. If you have any questions or comments, contact Mike at MikeRoth at RothConsulting.net or call Mike at 513-753-9400.